It's 8 a.m. and I'm just walking into work at the 9th Precinct in the East Village of Manhattan. The sergeant on the desk says out loud, Hey, the squad is finally here. So I respond, What's up, boss? What's going on? The sergeant tells me that Night Watch was here trying to get into your squad room. The Night Watch is a squad of detectives that handles all serious cases that happen on the midnight shift in New York City. They start the initial investigations, and then when the precinct detective squad arrives for the day shift, they turn over all the information they have and any reports they have prepared. The sergeant then says there was a hostage case and an assault, and some of your guys are already upstairs. I head upstairs and meet with my teammates, Jose Martin and Eddie Roos. Jose Martin explains to me that we caught two cases overnight. One was a big hostage case, and the other one was a possible assault in the housing projects on 13th Street and Avenue C. Jose tells me that I'm going to have to work the hostage case alone because him and Eddie have to go up to the hospital to see what's going on with their victim. He's in a coma at the moment. I say to Jose, I have to work this hostage case all by myself? Jose says, there's a lot of guys from Nightwatch already on that. They can help you out. Eddie and I have to look into the guy from the housing project. Nobody else is on that but us. Apparently, the Nightwatch squad attempted to use our office, but the locks have been changed recently. No one could find the keys, so I head up to the 13th precinct, where they are conducting the investigation for the hostage case that happened in our precinct. When I get to the 13th precinct, I am briefed by the Nightwatch squad and some supervisors from the detective bureau that were there. They tell me there are dozens of victims, a huge crime scene, multiple people to interview, and also I need to go to the hospital to check on the perpetrator's condition. That's a lot of work for one detective, but at least the case was started by the Nightwatch squad, so I'm hoping it won't be that difficult. So I asked the Nightwatch detectives, where are the victims who jumped the perpetrator? The Nightwatch detective says to me, they're all sitting outside. The one that actually jumped him is the blonde female down on the end. Her other friend, another female who helped jump him, is in the hospital shot in the leg. As I approach the group of people sitting outside of the precinct, I notice that all of the victims are dressed in white protective coveralls, like the kind you see crime scene techs or the CDC personnel wearing when they are working. As I get closer to the victims, I can also see that they look like they have just taken showers. I remember that the night watch detectives had told me that because the perpetrator was spraying some type of liquid that was either chemical or flammable, all the victims were processed through decontamination tents with showers. There are several female victims and maybe one or two male victims, all with their hair wet and pulled back or straight down. As I look at them before introducing myself, I think that they remind me of a nursery in a hospital. They look so innocent and clean, all dressed in those white suits. No makeup, no fancy hairstyles, no Saturday night outfits that they probably took a long time to put together. I can see the looks on their faces. Some look like they are still afraid. Some are talking and laughing nervously. And then I see her. There's a lone, blonde young woman sitting with them, but she is a few feet away, by herself. She is also clean and dressed in the white suit. But she is staring straight ahead with a determined, almost steely-eyed look on her face. I know that this is the woman who jumped the perpetrator, the woman who probably saved several lives with her bravery, the heroine. 
walk over to the serious-looking woman and say, Are you Anne Margaret? She replies, Yes, I am. I shake her hand and introduce myself. I let her and the other victims know that I am the signed case detective, and from now on they would be dealing with me, and I would be able to answer any of their questions. If any police officers or anyone else attempted to speak with them, they could refer whoever it was to me, and I would handle whatever the situation was. I then interview around 12 victims that are present individually and get all their versions of the incident. They all basically tell the same story. I ask, who is the woman who is being used as a shield? A young, dark-haired woman says, that's me. And as I'm interviewing her, I notice that she has several round burn marks the size of dimes on the side of her forehead. I ask her, what are those marks on the side of your head? She tells me, Every time he took a shot at the police, he put the hot metal barrel of the gun back to the side of my head, burning it. I ask her if she is okay and would like to go to the hospital, but she declines. I don't say anything out loud, but inside I can feel myself getting angry about what had happened to these people. I then interview Ann Margaret, and she tells me her story. When I first arrived, I went to the very back of the bar, which is where most of the crowd was, and there was at least 10 or 12 people, I would say, from the restaurant. So the man came in, said, help, I've been shot. And my first reaction was, what a terrible joke. And then it was just chaos everywhere. Bar stools were flying, people were running. I had no idea what was happening. But I looked around and I figured whatever the danger was, was coming from out on the street where that man in from so I ran instinctively to the back of the bar it was a very small space and before I got in there there were at least 10 or 12 people already inside then I heard a gunshot from the front of the bar and then that's when I knew that someone the perpetrator was in the bar I couldn't even tell you how long it was but I'm sure it was seconds probably not even a minute until he actually emerged into that back room where we were he came in found us all sitting ducks. In the meantime, before he came in, we were looking around for anything that could have been used as a weapon or for an alternate exit, and there was no other exit. So he came in. First thing I remember him saying was, it's a good day to die, it's a good day to die, it's not the day to pray. And he was angry, he was very angry. Still have no idea what is happening or why it's happening. I mean, just total shock, you know. I heard him yell, tie up the girls. But then one of the other hostages started bringing plastic handcuffs around. He had brought them with him and he gave them to her and asked her to tie us all up. We all put the cuffs on and then he said he wanted us all linked together, not just cuffed individually, but he wanted a big chain of people. No one was on my left, I couldn't link to anybody there. And then on my right side, we were putting them on ourselves. So I intentionally put it on as loosely as possible. At this point, I was wondering, what does he want? What is his motive? What is going on here? If it was just a robbery, you know, he should be asking for our, our things. And he could have just taken all the things from the front of the bar. So it seemed like it wasn't just a robbery. It wasn't too long until he made his motive clear. He really just wanted to kill people, certain people. He had a lot of hate and a lot of hateful rhetoric that made that very clear. All the hostages were very calm. I'm sure we were all just in shock. One hostage did start saying religious things and such, and he 
he'd kick her violently. So it wasn't shortly after he had us all link ourselves together with the handcuffs that he then pulled a bottle out and started spraying it all over the room on us. And that's when he announced his plan, which was to burn us all alive. I was facing up, so I got it on my, my skin. It burnt on contact, and I was kind of sitting in a pool of it. I knew he was serious. I did not doubt for one second that he would kill us all, including himself. Um, when he finally got in touch with the officers, they said, what do you want? And the one thing he said was body bags. Bring me 20 body bags. That is the only way we're coming out of here. And that really made an impression on me because that solidified my perspective that he was ready to die. He was ready to kill us all and die doing it. He wanted nothing out of this except attention. So I kind of resolved that I would have to do everything I could before he could do that. He's juggling his primary hostage and the phone now that he's talking to the cops but they're really not getting anywhere from what I can tell. And I also don't know if they know that we're doused in flammable liquid. And he puts for one second, he takes the gun he's holding and he puts it in his pocket so we could have the phone. And I said, that's it, that's my opportunity. I'm behind him. If I could get myself out of the sink, I could just jump him from behind, but I'm cuffed. So I don't know if I can or can't, but this is my plan. So I carefully, and quietly unlinked myself from the person to my right, which got their attention. They wanted to know what I was doing. And I didn't want to risk um, him hearing me. So I didn't, I just said, I got this. So I was able to unlink and then I kind of pushed myself up and forward as far as I could. And I leaned around because he was kind of around the corner. And that's when I saw, not only did he have the girl by the neck, he also had a, a lighter, a barbecue lighter in that hand. And I was like, oh my God, we're actually even closer to, to dead than I realized because I thought he'd at least have to go in his pocket and grab a lighter, like look around in the bag or in the pocket or something. I had no idea he had it right there and said, oh, okay, we really need to get out of this now. And then it really wasn't long at all, maybe 30 seconds or something. And then he put the gun back in his pocket and it was go time and I, try to stop myself. I had this overwhelming self-doubt, like, what if, you know? And I just, I shut it down. I shut it off and I said, nope, nope. I've got a good plan. This is a great chance. I may not get this chance again. He may not put the gun in his pocket again. And so I unlinked myself and I launched myself off that thing with such force. And I just came at him from behind. And he was much bigger than I was or am and I had to hit him a couple times to knock him off balance and he fell forward to the ground and I landed mostly on his lower back and I just grappled I just held him down to the floor as hard as I could as tight as I could then I, I felt these other hands also helping hold him down and I was so grateful for that and then his gun went off and then once the gun went off I think I started yelling come in, come in, because the cops were right there. I knew they were right there. But he ran off. I'm still holding him down because I know the lighter's in his hand. And he could grab it, and I could still go up in flames, even if he's, you know, mostly immobilized. And so I start yelling, shoot him, shoot him. And so one officer came up and did shoot him. 
and he stopped moving. And I yelled, shoot him again, shoot him again. The cops did not take a second shot, but, um, and it wasn't vengeance. It was that I still did not feel safe. I knew he still had the lighter there, and so he knew he had the gun there, and I knew that I was flammable. And that he was angry and that he was ready to die. After getting all the details from the victims, I then speak with the emergency service unit officers. A short while later, after dealing with them straightening out some annoying bureaucratic issues involving some high-ranking police officials, one item specifically that I had to straighten out was that the commanding officer was classifying the case as a robbery. I had to explain that the robbery motive was a mistake, and after speaking to all the victims, this case was going to be investigated as an attempted murder kidnapping case. I was then able to get back to the actual investigation and the putting together of the case for the district attorney's office. While a lot of supervisors in the NYPD are smart and competent people, they come at cases from a statistical and bureaucratic type of angle. In the end, it's always up to the case detective to put together all the physical evidence, the witness interviews, and perform the actual interview and arrest of the perpetrator. I always felt very comfortable working with the district attorney's office. I understood that we were all working together to find the truth and gather as much evidence as possible to either prosecute or clear a suspect of whatever crime he was being alleged to have done. I had been involved in thousands of arrests and hundreds of investigations at that point after 17 years as working as a police officer and detective in New York City. And while giving this perpetrator fair treatment, I was certainly going to give the victims their fair treatment. And if the evidence showed the guilt of this man, I was going to do my best to help prosecute him to the fullest extent of the law possible. As I pull up to the crime scene, it is all cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape. There are some crime scene detectives performing various duties, and a lieutenant in charge starts walking me through what they have found. The perpetrator had been using one semi-automatic 380 caliber pistol, and it was recovered from him. He had also been wearing and then had placed on the bar a messenger-type bag that had two more guns, additional ammunition, a knife, a samurai sword, and more large zip ties. He had also been wearing a catheter-type tube connected to his penis, and it ran down inside his pants leg and out the bottom. That would allow him to pee and not have to use the bathroom. He obviously had planned on a long, drawn-out hostage taking. As I look around the bar, there are tables and chairs thrown all over, broken glasses, broken bottles everywhere, discarded clothing and blood all over the floor. It must have been pure chaos and terrifying for the victims. I asked the crime scene officers, where is the spray bottle with the gasoline or the kerosene in it? They respond, we didn't find anything like that. They had been looking for a squeeze-type water bottle, like a Gatorade bottle that they use in sports events. So I say, it has to be here. He never left the location. The bottle that he used is very important to the case. It contained one of the items that was used to terrorize the hostages. I start looking around the bar in the kitchen area, and I see a Palmolive dishwashing soap bottle that has a reddish liquid inside. I tell the crime scene personnel to process it, and after one of them dons some rubber gloves and examines it, he says, yep, that's kerosene. After thanking the crime scene squad for their work, I head up to Bellevue Hospital to check on my victims and to see what's going on with the perpetrator. 
While all this is going on, the bosses from the detective bureau have sent out the Manhattan South Homicide Squad to the perpetrator's apartment to see if there's any evidence there or if any witnesses that can be spoken to are around. The NYPD homicide squads are units that are staffed by detectives from the borough headquarters that are on call to assist the precinct detectives in homicides and other major cases. In this case, with such a lack of detectives available from my own precinct, they were definitely a big help. My friend, Detective Irma Rivera Duffy, gives me a call from the apartment. She tells me that there is all kinds of radical literature in magazines, and there are even some handmade posters on the walls with different types of crudely written statements, mostly taunting the police. Based on what the posters were saying, it seemed like the perpetrator had every intention of engaging the police in a gun battle and possibly even committing suicide by cop. I asked Armin to put all the evidence together and bring it back to the detective squad when they're finished. They also find some information that the perpetrator was actually a barber, and at that one time, he had been the barber for a famous musician, and had even played a gun-toting gangster in one of the musician's videos. On my way to Bellevue Hospital, I give Jose Martin and Eddie Russo a call to see if they can meet me at the hospital to assist me in speaking to the seriously injured victims and the perpetrator. Jose tells me that they are too busy with their case. Apparently, the victim from 13th Street had been brought to the hospital as a regular sick case. He was simply unconscious as far as anyone knew. When the doctors and the nurses examined him, they observed what looked like boot prints on his head. He had most likely been assaulted and kicked in the head, causing him to go into a coma. As I'm driving alone, I start thinking about my tactics and trying to get the perpetrator to speak to me. I have already heard from the Night Watch detectives that he ignored them when they tried to speak with him. After all the terror and trauma that he has caused, I want to get all the evidence I can to help prosecute him. I put together in my head all the evidence I have seen so far and all the information from the victims and from Detective Irma Rivera Duffy. I come up with a plan to use the perpetrator's vanity and pride. Hopefully he is able to talk to me and not drugged up because of his head injury. As I walk into the 7 East Wing of Bellevue Hospital, I see two police officers from the 9th Precinct there. I ask them, hey, is the perp conscious? They answer, yeah, he's watching TV. I said, watching TV? I walk into his room and he's actually watching the story about himself on New York One News. I walk over to the TV, say excuse me to him, and turn it off. I introduce myself and he says nothing. I then say to him, Hello, I just wanted you to know that my bosses in the press are treating you like a stick-up kid. That you tried to rob the people on the street, and the whole hostage thing was some type of robbery gone wrong. He sits up a little higher in his bed and now appears to be paying attention. I follow it up and say, I know about your posters and the things you were saying in the bar. I know you're a political guy, not just a common street robber. But that's the way the press and my bosses are going to paint you because it seems like the most likely explanation about what happened. If you talk to me and tell me what happened, I will tell my bosses and the DA, and then the press will also know why this happened. But if you're okay with just going to prison and no one ever knowing why you did it, then that's okay with me. He finally turns and looks at me and says something like, I know you're playing me, but fine, what do you want to know? Before I start asking him questions about the incident, I tell him that I have to read him his Miranda rights. He tells me that he knows his rights, but I say no, 
I have to read them to you so that you know them all and that you let me know you understand them. He agrees. I go through each right individually. They include the right to remain silent, the right not to answer questions, the right to an attorney, and so on. After each right, I ask him if he understands, to which he replies, yes. On a couple of the rights, he answers, uh-huh. So I reread that particular right and ask him again if he understood, and I request that he answer yes or no. He responds yes to all the questions. I then ask him to sign the Miranda form where I was reading the rights from. I also sign it, and the two ninth precinct officers who were in the room also sign the form as witnesses. So now I start my questioning. I want to get the perpetrator to speak about the most important parts of each crime he's being charged with, to show he has full knowledge of what he was doing and what his intent was. In substance, some of the questions I ask him are as follows. Did you have a problem with the man on 11th Street? He replies, no, it was just business. And then he starts talking about his grievances regarding his particular ethnic group and other groups that he felt were responsible for his issues. I ask him why he picked that neighborhood to go to, and he responds, that was where all the people of that particular ethnic group that he had a problem with liked to hang out and have fun. He then mentions that he targeted a restaurant specifically that was run by immigrants from a foreign country, but the restaurant was closed, so he started walking around. I then move on to a different subject and ask him what type of gun was he using, a 9mm or a 380? He replies at 380. I want to show that he has full knowledge of what the actual caliber of the guns were. I ask him if the guns were expensive and he says, no, I just bought them in the street. I also ask him where he purchased the kerosene from. He responds, from a hardware store in Graham and Siegel Streets in Brooklyn. I follow up that question with, why did you spray the people in the bar with the kerosene? He says, to keep the cops back. I ask him, would you have lit them on fire? To which he replies, yeah. I say, did you care how many people you may have killed? And he says, no, I don't care. All of these responses from him were calm, serious, and showed no emotion. He knew exactly what he was doing. This was premeditated and planned out. The fact that no one died was a miracle. And of course, with some help from the heroines. After asking some more questions, I am called away to check on the status of the victims that were also in Bellevue Hospital. The young man who was wounded in the stomach is still in serious condition. I check on him briefly and then meet up with the sushi restaurant owner who was shot in the hand. He is in good spirits considering. I then meet up with Annie, the friend of Ann Margaret. She's recovering nicely and after we spoke about the incident for a while, I tell her the same thing I told Ann Margaret that she was very brave for doing what she did, and she most likely saved lives. I leave the hospital thinking about the four different people I met there, all shot in the same incident. One was a hateful, angry, violent perpetrator. Two was a young, innocent man out on the town. Three was a concerned citizen who was shot for checking in on his next-door neighbor. And four, a young woman who was out with her friends celebrating a birthday and would end up at the end of the night also being shot and becoming something she probably didn't know she had inside her. A heroine.
Epilogue The Trials Approximately two years later, Assistant District Attorney Pete Hinckley has taken over for Don Leo as the prosecuting attorney. Many of the victims will have to testify as to the events of that night. It will bring back traumatic memories, and while I'm sure they don't want to keep thinking about the incident that seemed like a nightmare to them, they are still brave and do their duty as citizens and victims so that this hateful, violent man will be held accountable and will not be able to hurt anyone ever again. The lawyers for the defense of the perpetrator, now a defendant, are very smart and put forth an insanity defense, hoping to save their client from a long stint in prison. And unfortunately, to some extent, it works. The jury is deadlocked on a verdict, and a hung jury is declared during this trial. A couple of years later, the case is retried again. And while the victims are understandably upset that they have to live through recounting that terrible night all over again, this time the jury does not buy the insanity defense and finds the defendant guilty of multiple charges of attempted murder, kidnapping, and weapons possessions. The judge sentences the defendant to over 200 years in state prison. A decade later, the defendant's attorneys are able to overturn the verdict on appeal and I get a call from the Manhattan District Attorney's Office saying that we're gonna to have to do this trial all over again for a third time. At this point, I have been retired from the NYPD for eight years, and I'm running my own private investigation firm in New York City, Cornelius Investigations. Assistant District Attorney Joshua Steinglass is now assigned to the case. Many of the victims do not want to testify again for a third time but eventually they all do because they know it is too important to risk letting this man free. Again, this time, the jury does not buy the insanity defense and convicts the defendant of the same charges as in the previous case. A few weeks later, while waiting in the courtroom for the defendant to be sentenced, I sit a few rows behind the defendant. I notice that he is turning his head and shoulders and staring at first, I thought, at me, but then I realize he's looking past me I turn around and realize that he's looking menacingly at Ann Margaret, who is also in the court. I slide my body over in the pew to block his view of Ann Margaret. I feel protective of all my victims. But to my surprise, Ann Margaret slides herself over so that I'm not blocking her view and gives the defendant a stare right back, basically saying, yeah, what? She hasn't changed a bit, still brave. The judge in this case sentences the defendant to 240 years in state prison. Heroines, thank you for listening.